0: The more we learn as students of Living Soil, the more we uncover what we don't know and desire to learn. We move from simple concepts to harder ones, always building a bigger picture of the world for ourselves. During Shaping Fire episode 79 with Joey Berger on creating soil amendments and natural pesticides from local plants, I stumbled into a gap of my own understanding right there during the episode. Joey was explaining the challenges to using aerated compost teas on compacted, low-oxygen dirt, and I realized that I really didn't have a good context for what he was saying. I mean, I learn on every Shaping Fire episode, but in that moment, I realized that while I use aerated tea and could discuss aerated versus anaerobic inputs on a convention panel, that I really didn't have it solid in my head from a regenerative perspective. How to use it as a regenerative tool. I laughed it off during the show and kept going like I'm supposed to as a host, but when the show was over, I immediately got on the phone and called up my buddy, soil scientist, Leighton Morrison, and interrogated him for an hour and a half on aerobic and anaerobic inputs and their uses. And at the end of that conversation, I realized how useful and entertaining this information really is, and I figured you might get off on it too. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week, and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. Today, geologist and living soil scientist Leighton Morrison returns to Shaping Fire. Leighton has joined us before for episode 59 on water and watering, and also for episode 54 on geology and biomimicry in living soil cultivation. Leighton is a lifelong enthusiast of both aquaponics and living soil. His obsession with Biosphere 2 led him to set up aquaponics experiments at the Rodale Institute. Leighton has worked with world-renowned soil biologist Dr. Elaine Ingham, blending his aquaculture insights with traditional compost and compost tea strategies to prove that natural farming techniques can replace modern synthetic agriculture. Leighton is currently founder of Kingdom Aquaponics and co-host of the Living Soil Conversations show on Future Cannabis Project. Leighton is a sought-after speaker and past co-founder of the Science of Organic Regenerative Cannabis Cultivation Conferences. Today we're going to talk about aerobic and anaerobic living soil environments and how to effectively use each to build your soil. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Leighton.
1: Oh it's great to be back, Shango it's always a pleasure to chop it up with you
0: fabulous fabulous so let's get right into it man so um the discussion of the day is aerobic versus anaerobic growing environments for cannabis, and you know um it's kind of cheesy to start off a discussion with a you know a definition it's uh, but but you know when it comes to it anaerobic and aerobic environments are just at the fringe of the science that a lot of cannabis folks know for for natural farmers and for, you know, serious experienced cultivators, the idea of throwing around, you know, aerobic and anaerobic as terms is something that they do every day, but most consumers and probably a lot of everybody else is not going to be as readily uh, comfortable with those. So, so let's start there. Would you define the difference between aerobic, anaerobic and anaerobic growing environments
1: sure shango it'd be my honor um so anaerobic means void of oxygen so that would be zero parts per million and aerobic um to the best of our scientific explanation at this point would be eight parts per million or greater now there is a top end of that which uh is problematic if you get to 12 to 15 parts per million in a parts per million of oxygen in a um aquatic environment you'll actually start doing damage to uh fish uh, their eyeballs their their slime their skin you know the Biofilm on their on their scales, so there is definitely a, a top end, and and I'll give you a quick short story. Um, when I was down at Rodale working under Elaine, um, she had a brewer that she was frustrated with, uh, wasn't getting to work properly, and uh, so she asked me to take a look at it, and I basically said, "Well, you, you're." air pump is undersized that's why you're having problems growing out these organisms and it made me start to think like oh man what if i brewed with pure oxygen what would happen so i got a tank of oxygen um and i figured out a way to cool it because or warm it i should say so i didn't subject the water or the organisms to you know ice cold uh, liquid oxygen and um i started brewing with with oxygen and i killed everything <laughs> very quickly <laughs> So that's a fun little fact that, yeah, there is, there is a point of too much.
0: So, so we want to find this particular uh, balance where our, tar- our target microbes can can most survive or most thrive. I, I, this this eight parts per million uh, threshold. Um, where does that come from? Uh, you know, with most things in science, it's not usually just like put somewhere randomly. Does something happen at more or less than eight parts per million um, of oxygen that allows some process or disallows some process? Why is that the threshold? Point?
1: you know that's a great question and i think it probably comes from um larger organisms not microbes not microbes Um, so fish um you know we've been studying animals and uh mammals and fish for a long time now and i think that there was some realization that you would not get Certain species of fish, and again, I'm staying in the aquatic environment for right now, um, that could live in lower than eight parts per million in oxygen. So, you know, like uh, trout or temperature sensitive fish, uh, for the most part, would not do well um, in less than eight parts per million. So I think that's kind of where that boundary got set. Um, And it's interesting because if you look at Um, swamps, where you have stagnant water and low levels of oxygen, you end up with more reptiles, uh, turtles, um, snails, salamanders, snakes. So again, I think that that science decided that at eight eight parts per million was the sweet spot for definition of aerobic environment.
0: So um you know I, the, I uh, my next question was going to be like do we consider aerobic environments to be living and anaerobic environments to be dead and I knew that I had a little bit of problem with that definition because i 'm pretty sure that the rice patties, um, well where they grow rice um, are anaerobic environments and yet they look healthy and they grow things and now you just named another anaerobic environment, a wetland that i hadn't considered and and they can be teeming with life right mm-hmm. and so so would you give some examples of w- Anaerobic and aerobic environments so that we can kind of picture them in my head. Cause I honestly, the only thing that I pictured as an anaerobic environment was just like, you know, a, a sludgy pool of water in some city concrete with filth. Right. But, but, <laughs> but, but I'm getting over this idea that anaerobic does not mean uh, unalive. It just might mean off putting to the human palate and nose.
1: Well said, my friend. Well said. So, you know, a lot of this stems from the soil food web camp and the natural farming camp. And it doesn't have to. And I personally try my best to make everybody realize that it's all life. And I don't care where it comes from. And, you know, the definition of a ferment is basically the use of a biological process with zero oxygen. So there's still biology in there. And I'm sure we'll, we'll we'll go down that rabbit hole deeper. But here's here's some things to think about. Zero oxygen, ice cold, no atmosphere, um, no gravity. And yet the tardigras can live in outer space. And they most recently harvested some... Bacteria off the outside of the uh, International Space Station in a test that they started about three years ago, and that biology was still alive. So there's a <laughs> extreme environment. Um, here's here's even even more extreme bottom of the sea floor under incredible pressure that would just ex- you know compact a submarine um, off of these volcanic vents. Uh, so you've got super hot, super cold, no light, no oxygen, and yet you have organisms growing. That would be another prime example of of an atmosphere or a condition or environment um, that was void of everything that we think of as alive. So the obvious one is, you know, the other end of the spectrum. Um, and again, I'm going to stay in aquatic environments because, you know, the we're breathing air. We're
0: yeah, and the, the examples are a little easier in aquatic yeah. environments too. And yeah. also shout out to the to the tardy grade, right? Water bears, gotta love yep. them. <laughs> yep. I'm yep. part of the fan there. base. <laughs> so so let me let me ask this in a different way then, because um um if I so so my first time coming across a um a Anaerobic ferment was uh, one of my uh, friends here on Vashon, Trevor. He's the first person, actually, he's the first person for me to really be aware of trying natural farming here on the island. And he had these five gallon buckets that were, you know, filled halfway with uh, uh, invasive plant material from his property and the rest with water. And then he had some aquarium bubblers in a couple of them. And then he had most of them that were just. In my eyes, just rotting in the sun, and and they smelled really um, well. I could be nice and say pungent, but they smelled like crap, right? <laughs> I, I didn't like how they smelled; they were off-putting, right? And so I couldn't believe that he was going to put this stuff in his um, in his plants, but his plants always looked really good. He's a he's a very talented uh, cultivator, and so i wonder to myself I wonder to myself now if 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 it's inaccurate for me to say anaerobic environments are dead, they are just maybe the ones that i don't prefer. Is it possible that i it's just because as a human i'm a species that is oxygen loving that I am naturally um, uh, discouraged or pushed away from anaerobic environments because they are environments. Like it's a whole ecosystem that I don't interact with. Like I want less of that and more aerobic because that's the kinds of thing that keeps me alive. Um, any does there it make yeah. any sense to that?
1: Yeah, yeah. No, you you actually touched on something in the last little uh, comment about your nose. So humans have a natural defense. It's called their nose. The nose, nose. So we wouldn't eat something that would make us sick and so therefore we're naturally turned off or wretch or remove ourselves from places that do not smell aerobic so it's it's a primordial defense and and again even in a ferment even in an environment with with zero oxygen it's still alive there's still biology that lives there it's just again not something that we would typically want to Stick our hands in, put our nose near, uh, drink or eat um, because of that primordial defense mechanism of, you know, don't play with this because it smells funny or smells bad
0: i think that has made me i mean like i'm realizing it right now that i think that this has made me prejudiced against anaerobic fermentations and inputs in general because they smell bad and so in my head i'm like oh they smell bad that's death i don't want to pour death on my plants and that's that's just wrong that's that it's bro science of the worst kind
1: <laughs> well i love the way you said dead uh because let's face it when when life leaves a body uh, animal, plant, or or human. Um, generally, there's not a very nice smell for a period of time until um, the complete decaying process or fermentation um, is over. And you know, when I first crash landed back here in uh, March fourth, uh, two days before the shutdown, uh, 2020, um, I I was you know. Looking around, going, Oh my God, this place, you know, Oxnard is amazing, you know, Ventura County, look at all these different plants, it's all tropical. Then the lockdown hit, and I really didn't have anything to do. All my jobs dried up. Um, The whole world was reeling as to what this meant and what was going to happen. And so I decided I was going to, you know, at least continue my work. Um, And so I decided I was going to make a compost pile. The only problem was I didn't have any inoculant, nor did I have any fish um, frass to, to get the part pile going. So what I did was I collected greens and browns, uh, scrounged them, again, diversity, diversity, as much different browns, as many different greens as I could clip. And I poured them, in, I put them in a uh, cylinder made out of uh, 6 by 6 wire and some insect screen, and uh, I wet them down, and... Then I went to the beach and I collected some um kelp and again, you know, as many diverse types as I could find. Threw it in a five gallon compound bucket and sat it in the sun for five days and watched it. And when it started to foam, um I whipped out my microscope and took a look at it and was like, Bam, look at the life in here. And it had just turned to a funk. It didn't smell putrid, it didn't smell like poop. But it didn't smell like it did when I first collected it, when it was not anaerobic. And it smelled fresh. Now it was something in between. And I poured that on my compost pile. And within two weeks, it was some amazing organisms uh, growing in there. <clears throat> so our our thought of that something bad means automatically is dead is, is incorrect. It, you know, there's still... A lot of life there as we've just discussed so again it's you know a primordial instinct to reject something that does not smell um like something we want to consume but that doesn't mean that it's dead
0: all right so so if we if we now understand the difference between aerobic and anaerobic environments and we get the idea that um You know, generally one is not necessarily better than the other. They're just different expressions of life. Um, But we are talking about our favorite plant, cannabis. And so, will you kind of like bring this on home and talk about, um, you know, what is the nature of the cannabis plant in that we as cannabis cultivators are trying to create aerobic environments because that's where our our cannabis plant thrives
1: Ooh, that's a good one all right let's let's reel it back in where were the original land races coming from they were coming from the jungle in india and they were coming from mountaintops in afghanistan and pakistan with no moisture and the other was coming from extreme moist i mean the interesting thing about perhaps let's let's go right to the amazon the jungle um if anyone's ever been there they'll know exactly what i'm talking about it's just such a weird place where everything is rotting around you so fast like the soil is just teeming with death and life and the air is is crisp with oxygen. Um, But you're living in a place where in the soil, everything is, is going through rapid decay. So that would be an anaerobic environment or an anaerobic digester. And the absolute opposite is happening in Pakistan and Afghanistan, where you have zero humidity and very little rain. So this plant has proven... <laughs> many different things to many different people, but her ability to live in an environment that is so hostile, it's not funny. And I'm not even talking about Rudy Alice. And that's another one, but it's in the cannabis family, but it triggers its own flowering because it doesn't get the light cycles. So, you know, that's why I think that so many of these different practices from natural farming fermentation to uh soil food web growing in super soils that are super aerated um both methods show efficacy
0: so so let's see here let's unpack that a little bit you took that in a way that i wasn't expecting because what i thought you were going to say is that um the 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 microbe life the rhizosphere that the cannabis plant has evolved to interact with right where the cannabis plant is getting sunshine it is both photosynthesizing that and turning it into exudates that come out of its root structure and feed the microbes. And at the same time, those microbes are living and excreting nutrition that the plant needs. And so they've got this back and forth. I thought you were going to say that for the cannabis plant, it, it has that relationship with oxygen loving microbes. So cannabis is always going to be best grown in aerated soil, but it perhaps that is untrue. Um, will cannabis grow just as effectively in an anaerobic soil?
1: <laughs> you had to go there.
0: <laughs>
1: That's what I love about you, Shango. Uh, no punches held. Uh, let's let's talk about Alan Atkins' work
0: right.
1: and the Earth Boxes. Um, Kevin Jawtree's got some um, videos up documenting um, the saving of a. Um, an old cultivar, uh, I believe it was a skunk plant, and he used Alan Atkins anaerobic. Let's let's get it right because Alan's great. Alan Adkison. I die right. I'm horrible in enunciation. It's all good. I, I, I can't spell because I come from New England and I can't announce either.
0: Well, wait wait until you start saying rhizosphere. <laughs> <laughs>
1: rhizosphere. Yeah. All right. So go ahead, Alan. All right. So he, he's proven um, that it is possible. Um, and in some cases, you can actually um, hold back uh, viruses and, or genetic drift from continuing in an anaerobic environment. And I remember distinctly, um, this was the first Regen conference in Humboldt uh, at Beginnings. And Elaine, myself, Joshua went to see um, Kev. And... Kevin was excited to see Elaine, and right away, um, this earth box came up. And to be a fly on the wall and know how much Elaine preaches of the horrors of anaerobic environments, um, I was just enamored that he was explaining how he had basically saved a plant. I forget the name of the virus that that, um, causes dudding. But had had stopped this or saved the plant, stopped the dudding, and was actually out, able to now grow the plant out to some degree uh, of success by exposing it to full sun and an anaerobic root base. Um, it was, I thought Elaine was going to fall over, <laughs> <laughs> but there's you know there's also um, sips where you're using um, anaerobic water um underneath soil and having the roots push through and down into that anaerobic water and there is some efficacy there. So, you know, again, I think that you have to look at what cultivar you're growing. Yeah. Because if you took a plant or a cultivar with a strong dominant history that came from perhaps Afghanistan and threw it in, in a in a swamp or Amazon I don't don't think that it would perhaps do very well mm-hmm. although you know nature proves us wrong all the time so you know in that environment i would say that you know again personally speaking i i prefer the the middle ground um biomimicry and we all know that in nature you get extremes more so now than ever yeah. and so in a natural setting, um, perhaps you would get a drought during the summer and a deluge in spring and fall. So both in spring and fall, you would be thresholding on anaerobic. And in the summer, you would be obviously extremely aerobic as things dried out. Now, believe it or not, but as the soil structure dries out and the biofilm cakes and turns to uh, flake, Um, Soil structure can easily collapse, especially if it's exposed to pressure, either from a foot or from an extreme rain. So that aerobic summer soil all of a sudden gets pounded by a deluge in the fall before harvest that soil structure is going to collapse, and now you're back in an anaerobic environment, and there's nothing you can do to change that because over time, it will happen naturally, but you're not going to instantly turn compacted soil into aggregates. So what do you do? If you follow suit, now's a good time to start using your fermented plant extracts to finish the plant, even though its roots are basically... Soggy and not in an aerobic environment. Now, something else that you need to take into consideration too, and that is that the ability of that root and the rhizosphere, which is the coating around it where all the magic happens, um, interestingly enough, can produce organisms that eat certain elements and excrete oxygen and vice versa. Um, It can also change the pH of the soil around the rhizosphere. So there's a lot of magic happening in this microbial plant-soil interaction um, that science hasn't completely caught up with. I mean, yes, we've identified these five phosphate-solubilizing bacteria, but in nature, they're in a community and there is what I want to call biological succession, exactly like there's plant succession. You go from the swamp, zero oxygen or very low oxygen, all the way up to the redwoods, very oxygenated, highly fungal. The other, the the swamp is is bacterial dominant. Same thing is happening in a in a biological world. You are you are moving through succession on a constant basis this the whole system is in flux never stops so in that if we're taking that into consideration um i again don't think that there is a right or wrong way um, but again i would i would caution you to use common sense and biomimicry and not just you know Waterboard your cannabis plant. Um, definitely give it give it some time to dry down. If you're going to overwater it, I mean, I know people that water stress, um, and they have good results. Um, so again, I think it's comfort level um, as to what you feel is your best methodology for growing cannabis. But I've seen extremes, and you know they've shown efficacy. Now, whether they got full genetic potential. I don't know. That's that would be have to be done in a side by side and every time I've tried to get a a, a cannabis cultivator to do a side by side it starts out great. But the documentation at the end never seems to quite happen.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. There are there are documentation challenges with citizen science. I may be a big fan of it, but even I don't like to document everything. Yeah, so, yeah it's a lot of work. So I want to talk we'll talk about one more aspect before we go to our first commercial break. We're gonna when we come back from the commercial break, we're gonna talk a lot more about uh, taking your soil from an anaerobic environment to becoming aerobic and and how to condition the soil and such. So we're gonna hit that. But but the last. Thing I want to hit here is, you know, in the, this first set, giving people a picture of what anaerobic, anaerobic environments are looking like, we just pinged the extremes, right? Mm-hmm. Um that's not how most of us are farming though. So most of us are farming with um, you know, like maybe it's new young soil, or maybe it's last year's soil but let's just say um, unless you just bought a parcel and and you are working on terrible soil or if you just brought your pots out of a dry garage and they were all stacked on top of each other so they're like dry, hydrophobic and compressed let's say like generally people are using fluffy soil and and it, even with these extremes that would should be considered the I don't know, I guess I could say gold standard, but our default setting is to grow in aerobic environments with a with oxygen loving microbes because we're growing an oxygen loving plant right mm-hmm. I, I just want to like back up if we've confused anybody because we we kind of our examples were pulled from extreme examples and and I want to make sure people understand you don't have to suddenly start growing in an anaerobic environment to to have the plant thrive like these the, we're, we're, we're looking at the entire picture but really we're still saying grow in aerobic environments
1: correct um you know super soil or soilless mediums are by nature you know oxidative they're they're very aerobic there's a lot of pore space um we consider them low tension soil and by tension i mean the ability of water to hold pressure in the soil um so yeah when you're pulling out those pots after um you know been sitting in the winter uh, over the winter dry and with no plants in them you are going to have um hydrophobic issues and so the question is how best to land a inoculant on that material um that can hold and take uh take take uh, footing, take hold to it. And so, you know, that's where you're you're best to try to get a lot of the material back to a hydrophilic state so that you're not fighting it and everything you pour on it um, just runs over the top and off the side. And so, you know, there's some some tricks. Um, There's uh, yucca extracts, which is a surfactant, so it helps the water... Coating or helps the water coat instead of bead. So we've all seen, you know, water droplets bead up on the on the hood of your car, Um, but you've also seen when water just glazes something, and that's where um, these surfactants um, really play a good role in, in, you know, creating that uh, moisture bond to the material that has. Basically, has a coating of wax around it. Um, so, I think in the past shows we did talk about um, what that really means: uh, hydrophobic. And it's basically when the bacteria uh, are not in an environment where they're they're happy, um, they will go into a cyst form or in cyst, and. Basically, what that means is um, they create a wax coating around the outside of them. And that, in turn, um, because there's so much of them, and there's obviously biofilm, um, that biofilm helps to insulate it for a period of time, although eventually that biofilm will flake off. Um, but those organisms will have, by then, um, prevented moisture um, from getting into that material. And so therefore that's why you have that hydrophobic uh condition.
0: Yeah, I'm um I used to have big hydrophobic problems until um until you and I did the biomimicry episode and uh and I'm happy to say that uh the last 2 years I haven't had any issues with that, but God, I, it was it was at the top of my list of issues back in the day. So so let's go ahead and take our uh, short break, and when we come back, we'll we'll talk about taking um, you know compressed hydrophobic anaerobic soil and and bring it towards <laughs> take, turn it away from the dark side and and bring it to the um, the aerobic environment. And and for folks who uh, 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 wanted to hear more of what Alan Adkisson's experiments looked like, Um, you can go ahead and listen to Shaping Fire... Episode fifteen, called "Open Source Probiotic Growing," um, and uh, and Alan and I discuss um, his Earth Box and and the attractiveness of of lactobacterias. and He's actually a historian, so you actually get to hear about how um, labs and 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 inoculated kashis were used all the way back by uh, Roman soldiers uh, to help calm them, and when they came back from war. So that's all incredibly interesting. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is soil biologist, Layton Morrison. For years, organic cultivators have been looking for a replacement for using peat moss. Peat moss has long been the go-to soil amendment for water retention and container growing, but organic growers know that peat moss is an unsustainable resource, and the mining of peat bogs destroys habitat and releases sequestered carbon. But peat moss works so well that many have continued to use it. But now there's finally a revolutionary replacement for peat moss that shares the same benefits while also being sustainable. Pit moss sounds and acts like peat moss, but instead of being mined from fragile ecosystems, it actually is made from upcycled organic paper and tree bark. Pit moss is excellent at retaining water in your substrate and creating air pockets and tiny living environments for microbes. Pit moss instantly increases aeration, nutrient absorption, and water conservation too. Carefully and locally sourced, pit moss is the result of decades-long research into the use of recycled paper fibers. Pit moss has the fluffy nature of peat moss and handles exactly the same. And like peat moss, pit moss is inert, so it won't change your pH. Available in a range of preparations including a nutrient-enhanced blend, a coco coir blend, and also as an organic soil conditioner with no added nutrients. Pit moss is also available as an animal bedding. So go to pitmoss.com now to learn more. That's p-i-t-t-m-o-s-s.com. Growing healthier, more sustainable plants. Pitmoss. With the national hemp program in flux due to stringent THC testing requirements, brothers Seth and Eric Crawford continue to release seeds to hemp farmers that will be legal, no matter how you grow them or when you test them. These new varieties from Oregon CBD seeds have substantial amounts of CBDV, CBGV, CBCV, and THCV while always staying below the 0.3% THC limit and guaranteeing compliant crops for farmers every time. Also, these new varieties cannot be pollinated by your neighbor's uncontrolled pollen or a rogue male in your own crop either. Oregon CBD seeds are non-GMO certified too. Oregon CBD Seeds was founded and funded in 2015 by Seth and Eric, maxing out their personal credit cards without outside investment. They continue to refuse outside investment that would change their company culture. Oregon CBD grows tons of fresh food on their research farms for local food banks, literally tons of food. They also give away tens of thousands of pounds of R&D flour to patients. As their company began to succeed, Seth and Eric started donating money to the cannabis medicine and hemp fiber cause, too, by giving millions of dollars to Oregon State University in order to establish the world's leading cannabis genomics research program. And they treat their employees right. Oregon CBD pays for full health and dental coverage for their employees, a 401k program, and their minimum starting wage is 20 bucks an hour. Plus, everyone shares food from the farms. Seth has been on Shaping Fire a few times to talk about novel cannabinoids. You can check out episodes 25 and 37 on CBD cultivars in the hemp market, episode 66 on triploid cannabis genetics, and the very first Shaping Fire Live, episode 47, with Seth and soil expert Jeff Lowenfels talking about autoflowers. If you are a hemp farmer and you want to grow reliable seeds that are sure to thrive and pass testing, check out OregonCBDSeeds.com to learn more about buying seeds for the 2021 season. That's OregonCBDSeeds.com. There is no doubt that autoflowering cannabis plants have finally come into their own. And Night Owl Seeds works tirelessly, bringing you autoflower genetics that are reliable, thriving, and with extraordinary terpene profiles. Night Owl Seeds is an industry leader because of the focus work of their founder, Daz. Daz is passionate about the cannabis plant and pushing what autoflowers can do, and cultivators know that these efforts show through in his seeds. And Night Owl Seeds really are extraordinary. Just take a look at the thousands of photos by fans on Instagram. The proof is there and obvious. Terpenes are complex and rich. Plants have vigor. If you are a fan of Mephisto Genetics like I am, you'll likely also love Night Owl Seeds. Night Owl founder Daz worked with Mitch Mephisto to build the Mephisto brand for years, including breeding Mephisto's much-loved Sour Stomper and Cosmic Queen cultivars. I'm growing both Night Owl and Mephisto this year because I want the best. And Night Owl Seeds knows how to cultivate community too. Daz puts out great stickers, exclusive packaging for limited runs, and desirable freebies. He really draws you in if you love creative branding. Night Owl even has the Secret Owl Society text club just text the word night owl one word to 760-670-3130 for early announcements and exclusive opportunities of course you can see lots of photos and find out about upcoming drops by following the night owl seeds instagram too at that's daz.nightowl that's d a z znightowl You can get your packs of night owl seeds at several distributors, including DC Seed Exchange, Insane Seeds, and Hembra Genetics. That's night owl seeds. There's a difference because we're different. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is soil biologist, Layton Morrison. So here in second set, we're going to kind of shift gears a little bit. During the first set, we all talked about um, the nature of anaerobic, and aerobic environments, some examples, how to think about them, the extreme examples. So, you know, so far you kind of got a good picture of, of, you know, these different ways of growing. Um, but this, second set, we're going to kind of go through um, a kind of a specific example of, of working with your soil when you're coming from an anaerobic abused soil, what most of us would call dirt, right? Before before it's teeming with life, it's compressed and and there's not much going on there. And, and most of us would call it dirt and then we build it into soil. But this all comes specifically from, um, I think it was three episodes back, I was interviewing um, Joey Burke. And I was using for an example about how I use these, you know, incredibly aerated teas in my garden every summer. And, And, you know, I love my brewer and, 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 and how I like, you know, bubble it up. And then I go and I, and I pour it both as a, as a root drench and foliar leaf for most of my plants, you know, you know, food and medicinal plants. And he pointed out something that blew my mind. And he pointed out, he's like, well, you know, you are pouring your highly aerated compost tea full of oxygen loving microbes into a soil environment that's anaerobic because in this example, the the soil was unhealthy, and and he's all like those those you know those soil loving microbes or excuse me the oxygen loving microbes are going to have a rough time of it and it it really blew my mind because i really thought of um aerobic compost teas as kind of being the universal superhero perfect for any situation and when and, and, and now I get the idea that oh when I when I pour it on this anaerobic environment, I'm actually just creating a bunch of death and sludge in the area because these microbes are gonna immediately die and then they're gonna have to be removed from the you know, from the rhizosphere. And so and so I called you Leighton. <laughs> and so and so you explained to me the, the, the subtleties about the type of aerated teas slash ferments that we're that we need to use. So, so let's kind of go through that process, if if you would, with me, Layton. So, so in our example, um, we have got ourselves an anaerobic dirt environment, and I am happily about to dump a whole bunch of ultra aerated tea on it. But there's a better way. You know what is the better way?
1: All right. Well, let's let's quantify some stuff here. All, All right. right. So one of the greatest spiritual lessons I ever learned from a friend of mine, John at (laughs) the lake. Yeah. Right. Um, to define something as right is to automatically define everything else as wrong. And I think if you let that resonate in your head for a minute, you'll understand more about what I'm trying to explain. Um, one of the greatest strengths that I've found in taking, um, dirt and converting it into um, aerobic soil, is the use of fish frass. Now, I started this journey a long time ago as a kid, um, but later to pick it up after a divorce. And at the time, I was working with um, aquaculture uh, companies to harvest their fish manure and work with it. and. I want you to think about this for a minute. So that manure went from aerobic, as it came out of the body of the fish, in a water column of 8 to 10 parts per million, sank to the bottom, where it started to go through um, an anaerobic digestion, for lack of better words, to a point where it was screened out through a filtration, um, where it went 100% anaerobic. And then I would take this material and I would aerobically stabilize it um, until I had this sweet smell, which I associated with certain biology because I was able to do the microscopy to verify it. And if you think about that, that went from aerobic to anaerobic back to aerobic. So what type of organisms will be present? And the answer is all of them. Because if the environment isn't right, they will cyst. So now I have this incredible toolbox full of anaerobic, aerobic, and facultative or oxygen-tolerant anaerobes, as well as uh, low-oxygen-tolerant aerobes, and everything in between. So... In, in my work, here's a, a great story and example. Um, a dear client of mine, Harvey Hubble, uh, whose father uh, the telescope was named after, called me about a uh, cornfield that had been in production for 60 years um, and it was horribly beat up. He had tried to convert it to a hay field uh, with little to no success, called me and brought me in. So, first thing I did was obviously soil testing, uh, infiltration, um, deep pit, the deep pit uh, percolation test, you know, the deep pit was so I could map out the horizons, soil chemistry, saturated paste tests, and obviously I put some under the microscope to take a look at it. Once I got all the test data back, <clears throat> I took into consideration what it would cost to just zero this field chemistry-wise. Uh, it ended up that I would have to spend $2,400 per acre to put the chemistry back in complete balance. So that would have been $24,000 for a 10 acre field to grow hay in it. And I explained what I found to, to Harvey knowing clearly he wasn't going to spend that kind of money, but it opened the door, uh, to allow me to do a little bit more experimentation. um, and bottom line was, I said, okay, um, obviously you've got sparse grass or hay. Um, you've got clumps and patches of, of dirt. Um, it's horribly compacted. I you know, took my finger out and I tried to press it into the soil. And I said, look, I, I can't do anything. This is, this is compacted. So in my experience, um, I'm going to use a not completely aerobically stabilized Fish manure, along with a slightly anaerobic compost, to initially land the first round of soldiers to begin to convert this soil or dirt. Toward soil, um, I also asked the uh, farmer that was doing the hay to um, get a little bit more diversity in the seed mix, like you know clovers and some flowers and stuff that would not hurt the uh, the the consumers, the cows and the horses. And so we uh, we did an application. Um, actually, I had him cover or seed the whole property, seed the ten acres, and right after he seeded it, I came in and applied this uh, biological concoction or mayonnaise, and then I um, asked that uh, I I have the ability to come back in in midsummer and do just a biological food, which is essentially a uh, water, molasses, and kelp and that after the first cutting that i be allowed to come back again and apply a completely aerobically stabilized uh compost extract as well as the um, fish manure Um, by the way that company is called fish brew on cape cod fishbrew.com if you guys want to get this product it's amazing i cannot speak highly enough about it because again what i said earlier you are getting a complete suite of biology both anaerobic aerobic and everything in between and needless to say um i came back just before the second cutting and i brought harvey out into the middle of the road and i pointed him at the field that we treated and i said what do you see harvey he goes wow you know it really looks healthy you know the colors nice you know I like the diversity of the of the hay and I don't know how many patchy spots and so I spun him around to look at a field on the other side of the street that I, we did not treat and I said can you see the difference and he he looked and his jaw dropped and he spun his head back and looked at the field we treated he said oh my god that fields alive look at all the bugs look at all the birds that thing is teeming with life and I said exactly and that was three applications and that field is highly productive um the people that purchased the hay uh requested the exact same hay uh in more of it from the farmer and i believe they've started the process of getting another field going so that the same thing can happen but it goes to show once you put nature back in play it just compounds. It just gets better and better and better with age.
0: So let's focus in a second on the best practice there, because the story is good. But I think that the the part of it that I want to tease out seems to be this, um, this active point where, whereas... I had suggested in my conversation with Joey that we just put a super aerated tea on anything and it works for anything. In this particular example, you took a compressed and tired field of dirt um, and you put um, partially aerated or somewhat oxygen-loving microbes. So so somewhere in the middle, they they are... They are, I mean, is there a middle ground between anaerobic and, and aerobic? Is there like, yeah, we kind of like aerobic and we kind of like anaerobic. I mean, like, do those microbes exist where those are the ones that you would incubate? And I think you called it your, your, your first wave army or whatever into the field. Are those, is that an actual array of microbes that you could go for?
1: Absolutely, and that's mm. that's the beauty of fish brew.
0: Tell us about that. Right. Yeah,
1: that's 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 fish brew. That's because, fish brew. Because- right. Because it went from aerobic to anaerobic and then back to aerobic based on my work toward it, and and in this particular example, I didn't I didn't fully stabilize it to eight parts per million. I left it at about four, so I was teasing out that whole middle ground that you're talking about, which is from one part per million. To seven parts per million, so that's a big gray area, and that's where all the magic happens. And remember this, right? You you, you talked about throwing your aerobic loving organisms in, and, and they're going to just die. Yeah. Well, they're not going to die. They're going to go into. They're going to cyst. cyst
0: up. Yeah, or, I get it now.
1: Or they're going to be consumed. Um, and if 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 you if you did actually kill them all, so say you did, or. Obviously, some are going to die, some are going to get into a situation where they can 't cyst up fast enough, and they're going they 're going to pop and they're going to release nutrients, so we call that a nutrient solution. Um, the goal of putting aerobic compost tea on soil is to inoculate the soil, right? You want these organisms to to grow out and thrive. Well, in the case where you murdered them, <laughs> <laughs> um, you basically have created a nutrient solution that's plant available, but it's mobile. And that's the problem. As soon as you water it, all of that... You know, uh, aminos, all of those peptides, all of those metabolites, tertiary metabolites that are inside the ectoplasm of the cell, which are all valuable sources of food for plants, are now mobile. And when you water, they're going to wash beyond the roots, or some of it is. Some of it will obviously be caught by the roots, but not all of it. So that's why we don't use, um, you know... We don't make aerobic tea and then and then quickly turn it into an anaerobic, so that so that we kill off the vast majority of them. Because now we're we're creating a mobile nutrient solution, and that's the cause of all of the pollution that we have now in, in our environment is due to you know those mobile nutrients.
0: Is it accurate to use the term uh, uh, facultative when it comes to those partially? Oxygen-loving and partially not oxygen-loving? All right, so loving.
1: Let's let's hit on that for a minute. All right, and remember, science is going at light speed now, and the docu- m- documentation of science is, is at a crawl. So what we're learning is so outpacing our ability to document it, it's not funny. So what we know is that the word facultative anaerobes, has been thrown around for a long time. I prefer the term um, oxygen-tolerant anaerobes. So these are anaerobes that live and thrive in zero parts per million, but can function to some degree, perhaps not thrive, um, in a semi-aerobic environment. And the same is true on the other end of the spectrum. So you have Anaerobes that thrive in aerobic environments that can still tolerate low oxygen environments. So you got to you got to kind of like overlap these ideas of oh it's just an aerobe or oh it's just an anaerobe. No, there's it's it's similar to the new understanding that the eighty percent of terrestrial biology can live in an aquatic environment and vice versa. Um, you know you gotta just kind of wrap your head around how nature is has inherently created this ability to live and and work and grow in environments that are not necessarily the ones they are associated with
0: all right so so if if our optimum- n- Natural expression is through um, having both microbes that are, that can succeed in anaerobic and anaerobic environment and um, This is a big case for us to have as diverse soil as possible, dumping a wide range of of microbes and nutrients and all this, because really, if the environment has both anaerobic and aerobic microbes, whatever happens with the evolution of our pot, even if it goes south and it goes anaerobic on us, sure, we're going to have like hydrophobic stuff to deal with, but the plant would still be able to get into a nutritional relationship with the anaerobic microbes even though the aerobic microbes have cysted up. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Wow.
1: All right. Now, you don't want to leave that plant in a sustained anaerobic environment, right? Like this that. isn't
0: the goal, right? But right. but the diversification is going to totally backstop a failure on the plant if you oh, screw man. it up.
1: Oh, man. This is this goes back to the horizontal soil system. You oh, know, again, yeah. these are methods to take the extremes out of the situation. Um, so you did overwater. No problem. It's stored down on the E horizon. As the top o horizon dries out, it'll pull the moisture back up via the A horizon. And the same is true with with the work that I've been doing with microbes. I mean, that was, that was the, you know accidental amazement or amazing thing that, that happened when I started playing around with, with fish manure was that I was by default catching this incredible suite of organisms that again, 80% of them can survive in a terrestrial environment. And they came from both aerobic, anaerobic conditions. And then I stabilized them back to aerobic. But if I didn't They still worked. So, you know, it's, again, using biomimicry Mm -hmm. and understanding perhaps bigger picture, like before the great human expansion, um, there was mass migrations. And these migrations were, you know, thousands of ducks that darkened the sky that landed in that pond and ate and shit and thrashed and trashed and then bailed out of there well, they just turned this gorgeous, beautiful, clear water pond into a mucky, nasty-smelling anaerobic cauldron, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But what happened? That pond came back, roaring back again. And this, this is on buffalo, deer, moose, fish. Fish would come in and just thrash a harbor, and then the... Prey fish would come in or the predator fish would come in and just trash and trash and take a bite out of every fish and leave carcasses everywhere. So this kind of anaerobic, aerobic back and forth is part of nature. It was part of the beauty of the Garden of Eden before we put an end to it through our mass expansion. Again, biomimicry.
0: All right. So um, I find it really interesting that the the... The, what did you call them? Oxygen tolerant microbes are, um, Oxygen
1: tolerant anaerobes.
0: Anaerobes, excuse me, yeah, anaerobes. And, and, and I knew that didn't sound right. Yeah. That they're that they're from the the water food web, water food web primarily that you've just, just we've discussed so far. And for anybody who's not familiar with the water food web, you should go back and check Shaping Fire episode fifty two with uh, Steve Raisner. And that was the first time. Like I've been in love with the soil food web ever since I started really caring about cultivation of cannabis. But to find out that there is a a, a an entirely uh, different food web that takes place in water like you know it really blew my mind but, but now you're talking about the water food web and bringing these oxygen tolerant anaerobes over to help us condition soil to bring it to take it from a zero oxygen to a medium oxygen so we can make it to a high oxygen and slowly but surely you know rejuvenate this soil Are most of these oxygen-tolerant anaerobes in the water food web, or are those just your preferred ones to use because of their ease of accessing them?
1: Well, that's a great question. But the answer is, do you ever made stinky compost?
0: I mean, not intentionally. If my compost stinks, I failed.
1: Right, but it happens. So those are are terrestrial biology that, that are... Um, oxygen-tolerant anaerobes, right? Because they didn't just happen; they they were there or present, and they became uh, active due to either lack of oxygen as it went down, or vice versa, as the oxygen went up, as things started to break down and you moved from thermophilic to mesophilic, um, they became active again. So again, you can't look at it like it only goes in one direction, because it's constantly going back and forth.
0: Well, the bigger picture that I'm getting out of this is that so long as we're not working in a non-natural, sterile-ish environment like... um like uh synthetic hydroponic, right? Where, where, you know, places where worms can't live, right? So, so long as we are, are using natural practices, there will always be in all of the water, all of the soil, in every rhizosphere, there are going to be both anaerobic and aerobic microbes because of the natural diversity of the soil. And actually what we want to do is we want to move our soils from being compressed, dirt-like, anaerobic to be increasingly aerobic. But the goal is never to get rid of the anaerobic microbes. We just want them to cyst up and hang out in case we screw up the pot and we need them as part of our save.
1: Amen. It's called a buffer.
0: It's a and right. you know,
1: I think that there is there is a warning here that putting on an anaerobic stinky tea um, in in quantity on a very aerobic and aerobically stabilized um, uh, biology is that the primary um, nutrient cycle in the anaerobic world which is called the ciliate will buzz around and consume flagellates as well as bacteria now he is nutrient cycling on a scale that's mind-boggling compared to amoeba and flagellates i mean he's 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 nutrient cycling at 10x of what they can do um but if he's consuming all your flagellates it's going to take longer for that soil to rebound back because you have lost ground. So that's why I never encourage anybody to use a high quantity of um, aerobic or anaerobic uh, compost tea or uh, ferments um, on a highly aerobic environment because you are going to step back at a point where you've lost a lot of your buffer. Now, if you want to take... They fermented plant juice, um, which again is being fermented biologically, therefore it is being loaded with anaerobic organisms. But if you want to take some of that and dilute it out in the natural farming methodologies, there's no problem whatsoever with that. You're not landing billions of hostile ciliates. Are you getting a few? Sure, I'm, I'm no doubt in my mind that there's going to be some. Um, but again, you know, diversity is is a wonderful thing in nature. Um, you don't see just one type of thing. Um, you always see, you know, diversity. It's not like you're it's not like the soil. Even the most aerobic natural soils on the on the surface of the earth, the living skin, for lack of better words, is not going to have anaerobes in it. Of course it's gonna. It's gonna have anaerobic pockets. I mean, we see that even within aggregates. So aggregates are basically a bacteria comes along and lands on a clay platelet, divides, grows out biofilm to protect him. That biofilm touches a silt Particle. They keep expanding out. Now that now that <clears throat> biofilm is expanded onto a sand particle, and this bacteria is growing, kids dividing left and right, and before you know it, you have a micro aggregate. Well, eventually that turns into a macro aggregate, um, and this is something you and I have talked about in the past. Um, into a rhizose sheath, which is the big clump that you pull up when you pull up a weed. That's just a giant sheath inside of that sheath on a microscopic level there are going to be anaerobic pockets it's not going to all be 100% aerobic and that's kind of the 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 mythology of of um understanding you know the whole bigger picture of what's going on biologically in a soil system is that, you know, you are going to have anaerobes and you may actually really need them at certain times, like overwatering or underwatering you know, where you have the aerobes that are going to come out and do the, you know, the heavy lifting for you. So it's, again, it's diversity, diversity, diversity in everything and everything.
0: I've heard you describe that, um, that biofilm, I don't know, trajectory before. And I've always liked it where if I get it correctly, you described a, um, a, a microbe finally getting a good living environment. And so it removes the hard cyst protection of it. And it starts to engage more with its environment. It excretes a biofilm, which is like a gooey substance that protects it from unwanted, uh, other microbes and sticks it and it sticks, sticks it. it and so it's sticky. So so this one microbe like now is now it's sticking to a bacteria. A, a bacteria, thank you. So it's one bacteria, now it's sticking to another bacteria, and now maybe it's sticking to uh, you know another life form, and then maybe a food source, and so. Um, in my head, this is how the, where the word aggregate comes from, which is like a collection of, you know, unrelated things that become a bigger thing as community, right? And so, and so this is building a more and more complex life system of all these different bacterias and their biofilm and occasional food sources. And I'm guessing protozoa and amoeba and stuff in there. And so it's making this big, gooey, sticky ball. And then that aggregate, uh, attaches to another Mm -hmm. big aggregate of the same thing. And so now they've doubled in size. And so you can see how this is, you know, increasing at a geometric rate. And that is what we want to do as soil builders. And is that process that we just described, is that the heart of building soil? Amen.
1: And and now that's not super soil because in a super soil or a soilless medium, you don't have sand, silt, and clay. So, you're very limited for biofilm to actually occur. It's only going to occur on each individual fiber. So, it can't really start to bond the fibers together to make aggregates. You follow me?
0: Yeah, for sure. Well, the funny thing is, is in, in my head, I'm like, well, yeah, who cares about the soilless medium? But, of course, lots of people grow that way, right? Well, um, most
1: people in pots do. Yeah. You know, I mean, since you did that... Uh, Or we did that podcast, uh, episode 54, where, you know, this was the first time I didn't get laughed off a stage about talking about horizontal soil systems. You know, I've gotten incredible feedback on Instagram, thanking, you know, thanking and saying how great it works. And, you know, it was, you know, it wasn't a great, great idea. It was just copying nature. But, you know, traditional cannabis, when it came, you know, when, when camp came around and they were forced to go indoors or into containers and diesel grows, um, they weren't lugging, you know, the natural soil into the container. They started growing in pots. And, of course, they didn't want to carry a 300 300- pound pot down into this container buried underneath the ground or into their house and cave the floor in because the floor wasn't designed to take thousands of pounds of, of soil. So it was obvious they went to peat moss and core quar- or that was probably just peat moss and compost and, and other aeration because of its light weight. And then of course, now you did not have that biological interaction. So all of a sudden, those um, you know organic, raw nutrient blends, the stone dust and crab meal and oyster shell, that no longer worked. So they went to bottled newts. And this this soil profile or soil system, uh, the soil as medium, was a great way or a great medium to hold water and to hold nutrients so it didn't lose it and so that was like the natural progression into the soilless mediums was by default um based on you know the government cracking down on on you know the free loving cannabis growers and so You know, that's why I continuously use the term soilless medium or or, uh, super soil because there's still a tremendous amount of people out there using this and now they can go back to using meals and teas with their super soil. Although the originals were just growing in soil, they really weren't amending the soil that much. I mean, they didn't want to haul bales of peat moss up into the hills to grow their cannabis, so they just planted it in the ground. So, you know, that's, that's where all of this um, struggles come in uh, in in understanding, you know, the difference between tension soil and low tension soil and the limitations of both. Um, you know, low tension soil has its limitations and regular soil has its limitations because you're, unless you fluff it up or unless you have a highly aggregated soil, you're not going to get the plant to push Like you want, because those roots can't bind or pound their way through that compacted soil. So that's where time takes place. You have to cover crop. You have to get that soil prepared for the the growth of the cannabis plant. If you want to try to you know get your yields and get your um, you know full genetic potential you can't you can't be planting in in hard compacted clay plants not going to do well
0: that's the that's the most cogent and generous description of soilless medium that I've ever heard you know like like You know, sometimes I get on my soapbox and I'm all like, well, you know, I like the way that Jeff Lowenfels thinks about it, where why would you want to grow in anything where, where worms can't live, right? Because that's, Mm -hmm. that's at the, you know, the basis of so much biology. But your description not only explains the, you know, the socioeconomic and political impacts that, that caused the cocoa, but the idea that you know, using a, a a a non-soil cocoa blend is comparatively better than unbuilt soil. You know, just crappy dirt, right? Mm-hmm. You know, but but then it takes more effort and natural farming techniques to really breathe life into compacted soil. I see again how I can't make the uh, like a wholesale claim like that because it really depends on where you are, what resources do you have, what natural inputs do you have, what is the legal environment where you are, how strong are you? Are you an immobile patient? All of these speak to what is going to be best for you, and I think that's very humbling and a good reminder you know when 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 so many of us want to judge folks for their growing style online you don't know their whole big picture so stop so stop thinking that we know better
1: yeah it's again it goes back to defining something as right yeah even even if you never intended to to say that you're do someone else is doing it wrong you did by defining oh, well, this is the best way to do it no there's everybody's situation and circumstances are different, and like you so beautifully or eloquently put, you could be a patient in a wheelchair you you could have no access to core or pit moss or or nutrients you know you may be forced to cover crop just because you don't have anything else you don't have the money to go out and and buy all these inputs, so you know there's there's a Method for everybody, or maybe I should say there's a madness to the method of (laughs) of letting everybody grow in a manner that they are most comfortable or due to resources, Um, and then encourage them and find find ways to help them. to better achieve the end goal of of growing uh you know some dank ass cannabis
0: (laughs) nice well said well let's go ahead and go to our uh second commercial break and when we come back we will talk about um a corollary of strategies for building the aerobic nature in your soil uh you are listening to shaping fire i am your host shango Loafs, and our guest this week is soil biologist layton morrison For 20 years, Humboldt Seed Company has been family-owned and providing reliable, high-yielding seeds originating in Northern California. While the current trend is to slap one super male into a line of hype strains, Humboldt Seed Company continues to breed with precision and care by doing large sifts and back crosses to emphasize the absolute best traits that a line has to offer. This kind of breeding takes time, talent, and space to work. No matter what kind of aroma you are particularly into, Humboldt Seed will likely have something you'll love. If you love fruit, you can choose from banana, mango, apricot, papaya, blueberry, blood orange, melon, and lemons across their various strains. They have all gas, glue, and classic sour diesel lines as well. Of course, there are the Heritage California strains like OG Kush, Jack Hare, and Headband, and their award-winning Blueberry Muffin is one that delights just about everybody's palate, especially when concentrated. Humboldt Seed Company is proud to bring to market the infamous freak show Cultivar 2, which has a great THC high, but looks so much like a fern that some folks can't even identify it as cannabis. It's a plant that really needs to be seen to be believed. If you're looking for well-balanced CBD seeds, Humboldt Seed Company can turn you on to CBD strains that actually have flavor, like the dill and pepper terpenes of Willie G's Lebanese land race. Whether you are looking for regular, feminized, or autoflowers, Humboldt Seed Company has the gear to make this your best growing cycle ever. Visit HumboldtSeedCompany.com today to check out their line of vigorous genetics, download their catalog, and find out where you can pick them up. You can also check out their Instagram at The Humboldt Seed Company to check out their gorgeous flowers and the extraordinary freak show plant. Humboldt Seed Company. Let them know Shango sent ya. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile you can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O dot Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynomyco on Amazon or dynomyco.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynomyco to maximize your plant's potential. Dynomyco Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. Get your tickets now for the 2021 Autoflower Cup this weekend, August 6th, 7th, and 8th in Whoop, Washington, just outside of Seattle. If you are a regular listener of Shaping Fire, you've heard me motivate you to grow some autoflowers and compete in the cup. Then I shared why I support the autoflower community and specifically this friends and family event. All there is to say now is to come. Come on out and have some great outdoor fun and let's get high. The Autoflower Cup is an over-21 event presented by Camp Ruderalis. There is something for everyone, no matter your interests. Stunden Glass Hookah Lounge, Pop-Up Magical Butter Chocolate Shop, Waterfront Marketplace with an array of vendors. There will be an old-school autoflower seed swap, joint-rolling competition, cannabis cooking demos, solventless squishing demos, and late-night documentary screenings of Fantastic Fungi. Chef Sebastian Carosi's award-winning classics like Elk Chili, Kobe Beef Kimchi Dogs, Oyster po'boys, Boys, and Razor Clam Chowder, Wild Oyster Harvesting, Mushroom Foraging, S'mores Around the Campfires Each Night, Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian Presentations, Psilocybin Mushroom Presentations, Camping, Glamping, RVs, and AirBnB. There are a few really swanky glamping packages still available too. You can grab a four person glamping package for only 1200 bucks and a two person package for 850. And the tents and furnishings are really snazzy. I just posted a photo of one on Shaping Fire's Instagram if you want to check it out. So check out CampRuderalis.com for event details and follow the Instagram at The Autoflower Cup 2021. And I'll see you this weekend at The Autoflower Cup. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is soil biologist, Leighton Morrison. So during the first set, we made sure we had a good understanding of what the nature of aerobic and anaerobic environments are, their definitions, how we should consider them, and some examples. During the second set, we talked about this this question of of, of putting anaerobic ferments into an aerobic environment and we understood that the the key to this is is putting the right kind of of or ferment into the soil at the right stage so so as you're building your soil you're going to be changing the nature of of your root drench as well well here we are in set three we're going to talk about um some other well we're going to talk about how to do that in a best practice but also we're going to talk about some of the strategies for building the aerobic nature of your soil so so layton let's start with um with with how to add or how to collect these oxygen tolerant anaerobes um, and it, that, that we're going to put into our, into our substrate. Now you've already plugged a um, uh, fish brew, which I'm excited to learn more about but you know we continually push to get off the bottle here on shaping fire and, and also to decrease costs by collecting this stuff on our own properties if we can. so, so teach us a little bit about collecting these faculties or um, oxygen-tolerant anaerobes in ways um, that we can do it natural farming style on our own parcels.
1: Sure, sure. But I just wanted to clear up one thing real quick, and that Please. is I plug fishbrew.com for a reason, because it is an inoculant. So as long as you're not letting your pots completely dry out, or you know, if you're in a tent, I always encourage people, even though you're not growing there in the summer, Leave a house plant, uh, cover crops, something in there. Periodically water it. Don't let it go completely dry. If you do that, then you're going to maintain that rich, diverse microbial community at a, at a ready to go. Um, so, and again, I. I Plugged him not because I want you to continuously use the product, I just want you to use it uh, you know, once or twice to really get that boost um, because those organisms are key to building those soil aggregates. So let's talk about collecting our own or uh, wildcrafting. So I already mentioned the kelp and one piece of the puzzle I did not mention is that when that kelp uh, had that white foam on the top of it That was the key moment to use it. It wasn't to let that foam crash, which it would if you let it continue to sit out there. It's going to get really nasty smelling, and that is completely anaerobic. So you're trying to catch it in the middle at a low oxygen, so around four or five parts per million. And at that point, when you stick your nose in there, you're going to smell it, And it's going to be just funky, like an old musty closet or something. It's not going to smell horrible. And when you stick your hand in there, your hand is going to be covered with biofilm. And that is the key to quickly turning plant matter into the composting process without going all thermophilic. Thermophilic is when the biology heats that pile up to a point where it kills the weed seeds. Um, it, it basically kills the vast majority of the biology off because it's getting up to temperatures where things just explode. The cysts, even the, even the strongest of these organisms, cysts, can't handle temperatures at 160 degrees. So that's why it takes almost a year for that compost to come back to a point where you've got those diverse organisms because it's happening naturally through uh, trans, uh, transference from air and from the soil that that's underneath the compost pile so let's talk about inoculants so another another thing you can do you don't live uh, near the ocean is go to a healthy pond or stream um, and look for aquatic plants um algae is a great one um there's other plants and again you know i i encourage you to wildcraft responsibly and with respect so if you're going to go pull up you know, um, some aquatic plants. Don't rip them out of the soil. Just cut them. Um, take small amounts. Don't take the entire plant. Um, perhaps bring something in as a blessing to to Gaia. Uh, bring a little seedling in and plant it right at the edge of where you've done your collecting. Um, you know, do a kind act uh, to the environment you know, pick up trash on the way out, whatever, 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 feed your soul. Um, But that's uh, another method is to, you know, collect those aquatic plants. Uh, I'm going to give Steve uh, Reisner a plug from um, Potent Ponics. He came up with what he calls his sponge tech, which is basically buy a clean, natural sponge, um, tie, a, you know, something to it that, to weight it down um, and throw it out into this aquatic environment and let those organisms naturally uh, colonize that clean sponge. Uh, I thought that was a really smart way of, of you know, collecting uh, these initial inoculants. Um, so that's, that's one way to get these, you know, what I want to call... Oxygen tolerant anaerobes. Um, the other is is the the silt, the the mud at the edge of the uh, waterway. Um, you know, there's all kinds of riparian zones. Um, a lot of them are polluted, unfortunately. So you really have to do your homework um, to seek out a place that you know is like in natural farming, uh, the least disturbed you can possibly find within a reasonable amount of. Um, you know, reasonable traveling distance from where you are, or do this on vacation and ship it home. I mean, there's 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 ways of doing it. Um, so that's that's one way. Uh, another way is to take compost that you know you're that's highly aerobic and that you're really happy with, um, and over wet it. Um, you know, start pushing it toward the anaerobic environment, and then maintain it um, and and watch it. Now, this is kind of like growing out IMO3. It's very easy to screw up. Um, so, IMO3, you're basically adding all these food sources and then making sure it never hits the temperature 120, and if it does, you turn it, and you have to continuously do this until you break the, the mes- uh, thermophilic um, phase and it pushes into a mesophilic, um, and that's where you're going to really get that rapid... Um, protozoa uh, and fungal growths. So and actually it's 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 more fungal in, in the IMO3. It's not really protozoa until you get into IMO four. But I'm not gonna hang on that too long. So again it's it's biomimicry. It's the understanding of like where do these organisms live in nature and then either harvesting them there or recreating that environment at home. In all right your so <clears throat>
0: <clears throat> let's uh let's uh let's tease some of this apart so let's go back to the first one where you said like okay number 1 is uh, collect seaweed so that's great so if i if we were to collect seaweed which i am going to because i happen to live near saltwater so i'm going to go down to the beach and this is our time of year that we get lots of uh, bullwhip kelp that um, gets washed ashore and so i take some bullwhip kelp and Um, cut it up and put it into, you know, fill up a half of a a five-gallon bucket with it, am I going to then cover it with fresh water or do I need to cover it with salt water since that is where those microbes are from?
1: Um, No, you're just going to use regular fresh water. Okay. And, you know, I encourage you to leave... You know, I don't even cut it up, to be honest with you. I just throw it all in the bucket, and I, I left the sand be all over it. I, You know, if there's a root attached, I leave that in, in play. Um, and then once I've done the ferment, <clears throat> then I will chop it up and, and blend it into the compost as well. Um, but for the fermenting process, I don't even chop it up. I mean, you can. I don't see any reason why to not or to Um Because really what you're trying to gain is those transitional organisms as well as that biofilm that's really going to help to create the perfect environment for this biology to really grow out.
0: All right, so so we've got the seaweed, we've got the fresh water, and um, you know we learned from that prior episode with Joey Berger that that creating these ferments, you need to leave these plants in a different for a different amount of time depending on how bulky they are, and seaweed's pretty damn bulky. How long would you let let this ferment sit before you used um, it?
1: So I did. I've done three of them since I've been here. Um, and generally speaking, and again, the sun has been at different heights. Mm-hmm. So I think the the first one was 10 days. The most recent one during summer was, was seven days. So it's really a key is, again, you're looking for the white foam. And you may have to do this a couple of times to get it right. Um, you're looking for that foam production. And you're looking for that smell to turn from, like, fresh kelp to this funky, like, Something that your nose goes, what the hell is that? It does. It doesn't recognize it as bad. It doesn't recognize it as good. It just it sends a warning to you. Like mm-hmm. I don't recognize this. I don't know what this is. And when your nose tells you that, then you know it's right.
0: Yeah, because you'll have that, and you'll have the the bubbles on the top, and you're like, yeah, boom, the done. The foam, yep. right? And yep. so and so, I would assume that that is also the same technique for like the general aquatic plants, right? Uh, usually, mm-hmm. probably freshwater plants that are you know around your ponds or vernal ponds or whatever where you live you'll go and and you'll put those in and fresh water put them in the sun for seven to ten days and remove it when you when you smell the beginning of funk and you see some of the bubbleization but how what are you going to do that with uh, silt and mud that seems to be a pretty different substance
1: (laughs) right that's the opposite so instead of adding water you're adding air Remember how I told you to harvest your silt when you were building your pot? Right. I told you to let it dry out.
0: Yeah, just spread it all out on a big big, uh, tarp or something. So,
1: So the exact same thing. You're spreading it out to a point where it's a little bit easier to work with and it doesn't have that stink to it. Because if, I don't know about you, but I've done plenty of hiking in and around swamps and, and rivers and, you know, you find those um, oxbows or where you get an eddy where the water actually swirls backwards against the current along the edge of the, um, the banks. Mm-hmm. And you step in that and you'll sink to your knee in mud and you pull your foot out and you're like, oh man, that smells rank, yeah. Right, so you don't want that rank smell But you want that funky like your nose doesn't know what the hell this is. So you're doing the opposite of adding water. You're adding air. So you're spreading it out. I don't probably suggest using the sun because you'd really have to be on top of this to catch it at the right point. But you want that silt to go from squishy like you grab it and it squishes through your fingers to the point where it actually starts to clump up. Now you've 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 aerobically stabilized that anaerobic silt,
0: and then and then am I gonna
1: put now, it all ba- am I gonna
0: put that back into water, or that's it? No, no it's that's done. It. That's and so and now, so, do I top dress with it? Or yeah, is
1: it- top dress mm. with it. Blend it with your compost. Um, blend it with your aeration.
0: The um, blending part is probably pretty valuable because I can imagine if you just top dress with, with it that it would be tempted to shift back to anaerobic as it gets soppy wet again
1: well no i would i would recommend taking a um, uh, like a a little bit coarser than a um, window screen yeah. and making a little screen box and then taking that clump and just screening it so you're you're breaking it all apart into little pieces, right over the top of whatever your top dressing, or screen it into a bucket outside and bring it in, and then just you know throw it on with your hand. But no, it won't. It, it, when you when you've micronized it, um, it's kind of like saying, well, I, I made you know flour meal or oyster meal. It's going to go back to a shell. No, it's yeah. never going to go back to that original <laughs> right. state.
0: It's it's permanently broken up.
1: It's yeah. permanently destabilized or micronized.
0: All right, and then um, and then the other variety you suggested was to take, if I understand it, um, uh, aerobic compost, and then add, uh, add a bunch of water to it, and then squeeze it out.
1: No, just push it, push it toward anaerobic. So I, I'm sure most of the audience has come in contact with stinky compost. So the reason it's stinky is because it's anaerobic or low oxygen. So again, you, in, in all of these examples, it's so easy to screw them up. It's not funny. So you really have to learn the craft. Don't expect to be a one and master. Um you're, really, you're looking for certain things. You're using your common sense and intelligence to understand that, no, I don't want to put a huge clump of stinky mud on top of my plant. Or no, I don't want to let this ferment to a certain point that it becomes a stinky, nasty smelling thing. I'm trying to catch it at just the right time where it's in transition and it's going to help me transition my soil. So in the case of a super soil or a soilless medium, that that kelp ferment or that uh, aquatic plant ferment, you're gonna know because it's slimy. It's like you, you feel it's like gelatin. It's almost like uh, aloe when you put that squish that stuff out on you. That's the biofilm that's going to create the environment to for the rest of the biology to explode. So. Again, this is this is a uh, delicate process and you're, the chances of screwing it up are far greater than getting it right, especially the first time. So you need patience and and again, if the more you monitor it, the more you love it and pay attention to it, the better your chances of a success will be. So again, you're trying to push this nice aerobic fluffy compost toward an anaerobic environment and you know if you want to do it mathematically that's that's probably the best way to learn how to do it so that you can repeat it Um, so add a cup of water into this aerobic compost that's in a compost bu- in a five gallon bucket and just watch what happens and then add another cup and then add another cup until the point where you turn it stinky and then rewind to the point where you've added four cups, not five mm-hmm. uh, and then repeat it.
0: So once, once you've got, once you've added the right number of cups of water and it has just started to turn where you're going like, ah, there is the telltale funk of transition. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to capture. Are we going to put that through a screen and make small morsels of it, like we did with the other stuff? Micron- yeah, I think it? that would
1: be. I think that would be probably the smartest approach. And again, you know, if you're starting with an unscreened compost, um, I would recommend you screen it. So it's at least easier to may, break apart. You mean
0: like may, you screen it first,
1: right, right. When, so whenever then, possible, again, screen
0: it first, so you don't have to try to do it when it's wet.
1: Right, with all these clumps sticking together. Yeah. So you know, start with a screen compost, and then after you get to that point, rescreen it with the same screen. Now you've now you've broken it apart again.
0: All right, awesome. All right, so those were uh, one, two, three. Those are four different varieties of collecting um, oxygen-tolerant anaerobes, um, facultative anaerobes. Um, and
1: the other way, too. You're, you're getting um, aerobes that are uh, low-oxygen-tolerant as well. So, so you're, you're
0: getting both, both, both yes. teams that play in the, in the <clears throat> middle environment
1: and do well on the other end of the spectrum. Right but they come together and play in the middle.
0: So let's let's finish off with uh, any other strategies that you may have for um, increasing the aerobic nature of soil, right? I mean, the, the whole point of this is that we're moving our soil from an aerobic environment to being uh, less aerobic and being, um, excuse me, we're moving it from being less anaerobic to more aerobic by adding new microbes and bacteria that play around in the middle area what else can we do to build the aerobic nature of the soil to help this this aggregation process on
1: okay so this would be do, this would be field soils because obviously a soil's medium is going to be already completely aerobic because it's got so much pore space so we're in a field condition <clears throat> um, and we have highly compacted soil say we just bought a farmstead and, and we're, we're growing our six plants or whatever and it was old farmland or ag land or or just you know well used lawn or or whatever um i would say that <clears throat> the 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 easiest, but the thing that takes the longest, is a series of cover crop rotations. So something like a jackhammer radish, I think they call them daikon radishes, um, are wonderful uh, for breaking up compaction. Um, I've actually seen stuff that was so compacted that the, the, the radish actually pushed itself out of the soil, which is you know pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, but it was a highly compacted clay soil. So it is understandable, but by using um, root crops um, and crops that have known deep tap roots, there's a, there's a number of. I don't like to call them weeds because I don't believe they are. I think they're what we call successionary plants, that they're basically providing or building the soil for the next succession of plants to come in by pulling out certain minerals that are deficient in the soil, bringing them up to the surface, and then dying as a plant and releasing them on the surface so the next plant, the next succession can come in. But that takes time. Humans... humans, you know we have a hundred years uh, mother Earth thinks you know a hundred years is a nanosecond so <clears throat> we we want to do this and have it right now so when you're in a situation where you don't even have the opportunity to cover crop for a year which in all honesty personally I'd like to see people build soil for three years um, to really get that to the point where you can just take your whole hand and just stuff it down into your elbow, without any resistance whatsoever. That's beautifully aerobic soil. That will send cannabis plant roots flying through the through the matrix. But that takes time, um, and perhaps amendments like you know tilling and compost. So your your strategy is 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 dependent on your again resources and the time that you have allotted. So in in the situation where I have a highly compacted soil and I want to grow cannabis plants this year in this spot um i would say all right so what you want to do is get yourself some really good compost and you're going to do mound culture kind of like hugel culture but basically you're just going to build a half of the horizontal soil system right on top of the soil Um, that way you'll get your fast rooting if your seeds your tap will have the ability to push down into the existing profile Um, I would highly recommend that you do um, a soil chemistry test and a saturated paste test because a lot of these um, imbalances cause compaction. Go figure, right? So by adding some of these... um, required micronutrients and or macronutrients um, you are going to naturally put into play the soil chemistry. Um, this is probably the most important thing I can teach anybody. You need to look at soil in three different lights and, and where those three circles come together is the sweet spot. Number one, physical. Sand, silt, clay and organic matter. What are their relations? What are their proportions? really important. Second, soil chemistry. Without the right chemistry, you're going to have all kinds of other battles you have to fight. And finally, biology. All three are equally important. And again, where the three rings come together, that's the sweet spot where you want to be. So now that we've got a, a, a fast-growing kind of soilless medium on the surface, we have our you know natural drainage and our sand, silt, clay below that. <clears throat> We've put our chemistry into play, now it's a matter of putting the biology to into play um so a good inoculant whether it's your own compost extract as long as you know that you have good organisms uh, i've traveled the country a number of times worked with men uh, women i've been baking compost 50 years i know what i'm doing i have the best compost i put it under the microscope i'm like yeah you've got great compost it just doesn't have any biology in it it's a great nutrient source and that's you know that's another thing that um awareness for compost and and taking that word and breaking it apart what is compost Uh, not all composts are created the same i I can take ground up organic matter and call it compost i can take biodynamic mayonnaise and call it compost although the texture of both of them are opposite ends of the spectrum right so we really need to define that word a little bit better um but anyway so back to the point now now i have this you know super soil, soilless medium on the surface for fast rooting growth. I'm going to put the biology in play. Yeah, the biology is probably going to wash through uh, a lot of that, that top matrix, but it will establish itself as soon as it gets into that zone between the two of what you piled on top and the existing soil. And then it's going to start building soil structure. And then I would cover crop all the way around the outside of this raised bed uh, or mound culture so that those roots from the plants that I planted in the indigenous soil start to push in underneath that pile and co-mingle with my cannabis plants. Again, the more plants you can put into the soil, into play, the faster you can build aggregation. Aggregation is is a key, or is is a direct result of glues. And I'm glad that we you asked me that question because one of the things I did not cover um, was other types of natural glues. So sap robes are. Known as saprophytic, which we can't call them anymore because phytic means plant, and fungi are not plants, they're fungi. So, saprobes um, excrete a glue called glomulin, and it again is an incredibly strong glue for bonding soil particulates, sand, silt, and clay, and organic matter together. So the fastest way to get aggregation is to have a high level of biology, especially if you're using like this, you know, medium oxygen uh, environment um, biofilms, um, and, you know, increase the bacteria. Make sure you do an inoculant of protozoa, which is what's coming from fish brew. And,. Uh, again, you want to get a really good fungal presence. And that's why, you know, Elaine, Dr. Elaine Ingham speaks so much about the fungal F to B ratio is because you're missing 50% of the entire soil kingdom. If you do not have mycorrhizae and saprophytes or saprobes doing the work for you by excreting uh, acids and building glues and pushing nutrients and cycling all over the place. I mean, the new work coming out on mycorrhizae, insane. There are relationships of bacteria that move in and out through the wall of the hyphae, internally into the fungi, to perform processes and also move back out and travel down it. There's some incredible new um, videos showing uh, uh, with some incredible new microscopy uh, techniques showing just colonies of bacteria moving up and down the channels of the hyphae as if it was a superhighway. And they're not all going in one direction. They're, they're, they're going at each other from both directions and moving around each other. It's crazy. So if you do not have these, these organisms in play, you're losing 50% of the potential uh, of, of you know plant genetics. And again, if you're going to use mycorrhizae and you're going to use it in pots, you got to have plants growing nonstop in that or that mycorrhizae is going to die. And if you use any soft rock phosphate, you're going to disassociate that plant with the mycorrhizae and the mycorrhizae is going to die. And remember, it takes 90 days for full colonization. So that means from the root to the source of sand silt and clay to mine so again if you have a super soil and you do not have sand silt and clay don't waste your money on mycorrhizae inoculants you're just throwing your money out the window but those guys are what is going to speed up that aggregation process and in the case of a mound culture um, in the fall you want to plant it with a winter wheat you want to plant it with something that's going to continuously feed your biological kingdoms um, throughout the course of the winter, or until they go dormant. Now, if, if it freezes and it goes dormant, that's fine. Everything is going to be in play in spring, just like it is in nature. So, you know, those are the those are the key ways to to build um, soil in a unideal, dirtish environment.
0: Right on. That's great. You know that. Um, <clears throat> The, uh, the mound style um, is actually what you taught during uh, the water and watering episode. And to, for me to get over my hydrophilic Soil, right? Because the. the hydrophobic.
1: So- yeah, me. Hy- yeah, yeah. It's
0: yeah. Yes, hydrophobic. You got it. Um, the, the, hydro- the, the soil top had gotten to the point where when I poured my water on it, it just like slid right off like it was <laughs> on the, um, the hood of a car. It just mm-hmm. slid off to the side and then down the side of the pot. And during that episode, you're all like, hey, you know, cover cover all of that with compost and make sure it doesn't dry out. Just keep it nice and moist. And, you know, maybe it took two weeks for the constant interaction and of all that, the compost and the moisture and the microbes, the bacteria in the compost. It just like woke up all of the cysted biology in my bio... Hydrophobic soil and, and it just like melted away. And I can Mm -hmm. see how if you had a pile of that, um, and they were, you know, they were placed nearby each other on acreage, how it would have that same effect. You're, you're essentially softening up parts of its protective, you know, sheath and incurred coaxing some of the life to come back and wake up again, um, until that it can then spread itself.
1: Mhm spot on and remember like anytime water moves horizontally and laterally it's eroding and you do not want that and that's you know that's the biggest problem we have as a as a species right now is is the loss of soil through transportation all 80% of all the soils on this planet came from transportation so that's wind or water and to have bare soil i mean i live out here in oxnard and every time the wind picks up you get dust devils and everything is caked with dust all the time um, because these guys are just constantly plowing and rotating and they're never cover cropping Um, and they don't give the soil a chance to to heal itself Um, they just pound it with more friggin' mpk and that's a result of you know that's why the salt the soil is just blowing away and they're down into subsoil now. I mean, lucky for them that the the soil that they have here is this amazing clay sand uh, clay silt relationship. It's really silty clay sand, and the nutritional value of it is insane. The problem is that again we have a very dry environment and it's windy, um, and they don't they don't. I shouldn't say they don't have the best practices. They have the practices that they utilize because they're producing so much food all the time. And, you know, that's the necessary of what I want to call manufacturing farming, where you just constantly put in another row, another another round of plants, another round of plants, another round of plants. You just never get a chance to stabilize it and build aggregation. But um, you're spot on. I mean, you could put Uh, This mound um, out in the middle of your backyard and you'll see I mean it's gonna It's gonna soften the soil probably within five six eight feet of that pile once it gets going And that's why I said, you know plant plant all the way around it because that too is gonna help to soften even further out and deeper down as those roots penetrate and and build rhizosphere and, and introduce all those microbes into that soil matrix they'll start building aggregates i mean they're they're hard-working little guys
0: (laughs) fantastic well we have reached the end of our time layton thank you so much for sharing your insight as usual you know as, as you know i love coming to you as a soil scientist because not only do you have the hard earned data and science to break down but also um um, you know you're uh, you're a rambunctious storyteller, so <laughs> so you're you're a lot of fun to hang with too. So
1: <laughs> my pleasure, so, Django. It's always a pleasure to hang out
0: with you. Right on, brother. Well, so we'll see you next time. So if you want to follow uh, Leighton and the new things that he is learning, the best place to do that is by following his Instagram, where he's pretty active, and that's at Kingdom Aquaponics LLC. Um, he also has got a website at the same address, Kingdom. Aquaponics LLC and if this is the first time that you have uh, heard Leighton I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the other Shaping Fire episodes where he has been my guest Uh, episode number 54 on geology and biomimicry and that's the episode where we talk about the um, the layering technique of creating substrate for containers and pots and raised beds and and then all Also, Shaping Fire episode 59 on water and watering, explaining how water moves itself around the rhizosphere and how to determine um, how much water is enough when watering your plants. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.